we find our seats again, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 7 this evening. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 is the next part in the book of Deuteronomy, and it really builds on what we have talked about previously. It actually combines or brings together not only the historical analysis that Moses has done in chapters 1 through 4, but it also brings together the specific instructions that we've seen in chapters 4 through 6, and it brings them together to describe the next stage of Israel's um, journey, their conquest of the Holy Land of Canaan and their entry into the land. After they've conquered the land, where we're going next in Deuteronomy are a lot of specific instructions, which I think there's a lot of value in. But this chapter is really moving that narrative sequence Along, And then Moses is going to come back and say, once you've conquered the land, which is what seven and parts of eight talk about, then here's some specific instructions I want you to keep in mind as I retell the law. So that's what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about God discussing the conquest of the people. But this is a, a theological or a God-centered description of that conquest. Uh, Moses is going to talk about the future. He's going to talk about who's going to be conquered. But the details aren't particularly important. They're recorded for us in the book of Joshua, certainly. But what Moses wants us to understand is how God is involved and how ultimately God is the one that will defeat Israel's enemy if, of course, Israel is obedient. But I want to talk about not only the people groups that are going to be displaced, because it's important to understand the historical context of our Bibles, but I also want to take away a few lessons I think we can learn from how God is described in this chapter and how the Israelites are called to obey God. Now, Deuteronomy 7 opens like this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. I know that's a funny place to stop, but I think it's worth stopping here because this, in a sense is a second chance for the nation of Israel. What is being described here, not that the law has been established, and remember the central ideas of the law is that God is God and we should love him, listen and obey. And Moses established the legal framework for the entire law, that's the Ten Commandments. Now he's describing the next stage of the journey. And the Israelites are going to face enemies. Now, these are the same seven enemies that have been described once before, not in this same grouping, not this specific seven, but this group has been described before back in the book of Numbers, specifically in Numbers 10 through 14. 
Now, why are they described in Numbers 10 through 14? Because, of course, that was the first time that Israel stood with an opportunity to enter into the promised land. And that time, of course, after having sent spies to investigate the land, we all know from the earlier story that the Israelites rejected God's plan. They rejected Moses as their leader, and they attempted to turn away until God sent judgments on them, until they tried to invade the land anyway, after God had described their judgment, and they had failed. So again, the Israelites are facing the same enemies, theoretically in a worse position because the men that had left Egypt had some experience in war. This generation has none. And the Israelites are again posed the same question. Will you advance into the land and fight these people? The answer this time, thinking ahead to what happens after Deuteronomy, is yes. They would indeed invade the land and they would engage with the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now collectively, God is making a point here that these nations are more powerful than Israel. And not only were they more powerful, if I can just very briefly deviate into military history, they had the advantageous position here. They were defending Israel as a particularly, or the land of Israel, the Holy Land, is a particularly easy to defend location. It's very mountainous. It's very rugged. This plays a role in many historical events of the Bible. And so from a military perspective, if you were in command of the Israelites without God's help, you would be facing a nigh impossible task getting rid of these groups what god is saying is do you have faith in me to defeat these enemies because of course there's no way the israelites can do it on their own but god can and in fact we're going to revisit this point near the end of the lesson now these seven groups for your general information were groups that lived in the Holy Land. Now, because Israel is going to displace these people groups, they are very difficult to identify as far as their exact locations. Some of them are much larger people groups. The Hittites, the Canaanites, and the Amorites are all people groups that are very widely spread across the Near East. The Hittites primarily were settled in northern Israel at this time, but their capital and their homeland was actually several hundred miles further up in what we would call Asia Minor today uh, in the center of that peninsula. So the Hittites were really colonists in this area. They weren't long-term settlers, unlike many of the other groups. The Canaanites primarily actually lived also in the north, but primarily along the coast. Canaanite, when you see the word listed in many other different tribal groups, is actually referring to a specific group of Canaanites that inhabited the area around Phoenicia. These are the same people group as the later Phoenicians, who, of course, brought the alphabet to much of the Mediterranean world. This is where we get the word phonics from, settled in Carthage and things like that. So when you see Canaanite listed with other people groups, this is who we're talking about. If you see Canaanite used generally, if it's like Israelites versus Canaanites, then it's just the people that inhabited the land. But when we see Canaanite used in this kind of context, we're talking about a specific group. The Amorites lived in the western desert areas and around the Sea of Galilee, and their culture actually extends out into the Fertile Crescent 
um, more towards the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, or at least the northern Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Um, the other four groups are a lot harder to identify. Certainly, the book of Joshua identifies some locations where they lived. However, the Israelites um, destroyed them, and so as far as our ability as historians or archaeologists are concerned, I can't tell you specifics about where they are. I'm fully convinced they were there. I'm not in any way questioning the Bible's account here. I just can't give you any additional context than what the Bible itself does. The only details that the Bible has is that the Jebusites lived somewhere around the Jerusalem area. They're the only group of the ones that didn't inhabit other areas that we know more about. Now, God continues from verse 1, and he talks about the important details that Israel needs to remember. Verses 2 and 3 continue this way. And when the Lord your God gives them these seven tribes over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Now, God wants to talk about the covenant relationship that he has with Israel. That's part of the topic of this chapter. And he also contrasts this to potential covenants that are formed with other nations. God is making a very clear point here. And this point perhaps is easily missed for us because the word covenant occurs fairly frequently in our Old Testament. But this is actually a pretty important word. It's the same word, the word that I underlined in the last slide of the Bible verse, is the same word used between the relationship between God and his people. It's the word barak that's up there in Hebrew for you to look at. Uh, This is the word for covenant. God has made a covenant with Israel, and so he's saying, since you've made a covenant with me, there's a covenant between me and you, Israel, you therefore do not need a covenant with anyone else. And in fact, if you form a covenant with anyone else, that actually is a sign of faithlessness on your part. If you're going to have a covenant with me, God says, you don't need a covenant with anyone else. And this, of course, is the truth. God alone is the one who saves. God alone is the one who leads. You don't need a covenant with anybody else for your protection, for your salvation. This is true for Israel on a national level. It's true for us as New Testament believers on a salvation level, a personal level. No other covenants are needed. In fact, no other covenants are effective. This, by the way, helps us to perhaps have some clarity on why God is so adamant about the destruction of the Canaanites and the other people groups. Now, we've talked already in an earlier chapter that God ultimately is actually in a position as the judge of the universe to condemn all sin. And since all humans are sinner, God really has the right to condemn all of us to immediate destruction and That's really what we deserve. It's only through God's mercy that he grants all of us an opportunity to survive. So certainly that's still true. We won't go into any more detail on that tonight. But here we see a reason why God would be so adamant. You are not to form relationships with these people because this will lead you to forming a covenant with them, relying on them and not relying on me specifically the type of marriage that he's talking about in verse three is what we might call the marriage alliance and this by the way is clear because when we think about this from moses's perspective it's really important to remember that moses himself 
was married to a foreign woman. He was not married to a Israelite. So he can't possibly be condemning marrying someone from a different people group entirely. The point here is marrying someone really of a different religious group. This has some connotations to Paul's advice not to marry uh, marry someone and be unequally yoked together. The point is not so much the national origin of the person being married. The point is, is this person a follower of God? And by the way, this is why later on Deuteronomy 21, for example, in several places in Leviticus and Numbers, God actually lays out how it's possible to join the covenant community. You can start as a non-Israelite and through doing certain things actually become part of or marry into the nation of Israel. So it's not that God is against the Israelites marrying anyone from Canaan. And in fact, we know Rahab, for example, is going to marry into the Israelites. And God is obviously okay with that because Jesus is descended from her eventually. The point is that you must rely on God. You can't go forming marriage alliances. You might have the greatest alliance you can with these foreign peoples. That is not going to save you. Your covenant with God is what matters. We also see in this chapter, which Solomon perhaps best illustrates for us, that a marriage to someone of a different faith is oftentimes destructive or dangerous because they lead us to worship other God. So part of this is to protect the covenant. Part of this is to protect the covenant on a physical level and on a spiritual level. God talks about his covenant in the next major section. We are going to skip verses 4 and 5 for sake of time. But verses 6 through 11 describe this relationship, this crucial relationship between God and his people. And I know this is a lengthy section, but I think it's valuable for us to read. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because of you, you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their faith those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Now this is what we call the Mosaic Covenant. This isn't the only place that we see it so clearly outlined, but this is one of the places we see it. And this is very different. The Mosaic Covenant is different from, for example, the Abrahamic Covenant that God made with Abraham. In fact, there's this very interesting symbology where God promises to multiply Abraham when it time, comes time to swear the oath, God actually makes Abraham fall asleep and God goes through the covenant actions on his own, which tells us that God will hold up his end of the bargain no matter what Abraham does, which is, of course, very comforting because man is flawed inherently. We're always going to mess up. Abraham was always going to mess up. But God promised to fulfill his part of the bargain. 
The same thing is true of the new covenant. The new covenant that Jesus sealed with his death and his resurrection is a non-conditional covenant. While there is one condition, you do have to believe in Jesus Christ and confess him as your Lord. But once you've done that, Jesus does everything else. There's no continued requirement to have a covenant or a promised relationship with God. But the Mosaic covenant is different. God has clearly lined out here that there is something that he is going to do. He's going to do all of these things. There's all these benefits that God is going to provide, but there is a requirement on Israel. Israel must obey what God has commanded. Now, God, throughout chapter 7 and in other places, talks about the blessings. For example, he is going to multiply the people. He's going to multiply their livestock. He's going to give them food and abundance, not just abundance in the terms of like having enough to eat, but abundance to the point of luxury. And of course, God is going to very relevantly to this passage, give victory in war to the Israelites if they obey. But God also reminds the Israelites that if they do not obey, there is going to be um, the opposite If there is failure to obey, there will not be blessings. And in fact, as we're going to talk about much later on in Deuteronomy, there will be specific punishments and cursings as a result of this. Now, this reminds us that God is ultimately the judge. Remember that that final verse that we read talks about God literally destroying those who reject him face to face. God is the ultimate judge. And while he is merciful and oftentimes does not destroy us for disobeying him, this is a reminder that this is who God is. God does not accept disobedience. He does not accept sin long term. He cannot tolerate it. He is the holy God. And this is a very, very important reminder for the Israelites to remember. God cannot tolerate sin. They must do their best to obey. Now, again, the sad reality is that Israel couldn't obey. They could not keep this covenant. It was impossible. Only one person ever has successfully kept this Mosaic covenant, has successfully heard and obeyed all that God has. That person is Jesus. So it is a sad reality that the Israelites couldn't do this. Now, that being said, God does in the law create a system that allows Israel to atone for their misdeeds. This does not require perfection from them to get God's blessing, but it does require them to love God and to live that out if they want to enjoy the blessing. Something that sadly, while this generation, I think, does largely live it out, although there are exceptions, very quickly the, uh, the future generations will not live out this covenant that God so clearly describes. So you must obey to get the blessing, and of course, that's not going to happen. God then discusses his track record, and this is actually one of the coolest things about this particular passage. So Israel's going in to fight these people. If they obey, God will give them victory. If they do not obey, they will fail. But God, just to make it clear that he is going to succeed, he asks them to consider something. So if you perhaps were wondering, Israelites, if God can beat these seven nations, verses 17 through 19 say this. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the people of whom you are afraid. Moses reminds us 
what the history recorded for us in the Bible teaches us. It teaches us what God has done in the past. I want you to consider the context of the Israelites. The Egyptians were the most powerful nation that they knew of. In fact, from a world history perspective at this particular time, they were one of two superpowers, um, nations that had amount of power that no other contemporary nation could match. And yet God had defeated them. In fact, he's making a point. If I can defeat Egypt, if I can demonstrate my power over Egypt, how is it that these small nations that you're going to face could possibly be a problem for me? The same irony, by the way, is pointed out in numbers. The people get one look at the Canaanites and they give up, which is hilarious because God just got them out of Egypt, which was a far tougher order. If somebody can get you out of Egypt, he can certainly get you in to Canaan. This is easy for the one who can defeat Egypt. So this reminds us, that God records his actions in Scripture. He does things so that we can learn lessons for the future. God has already proved himself on the biggest of stages with the greatest of events. He's handled problems and he's handled them perfectly. He can handle our problems. This is a lesson that the Israelites could do well to take to heart. And it's also a lesson that we as well should remember. God has handled big problems in the past. He can handle our problems. This is one of the reasons that our Old Testament especially records how God handled problems, although our New Testament does this as well. I want to conclude today with some encouragement to the followers of God, which of course includes the Israelites, but it also includes us. Some things that are really important to keep in mind. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love or mercy that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you, or among your livestock. Now, this is a specific promise to the Israelites. This is not necessarily to you and I. So I don't want to be unclear about why I'm sharing this with you. But I do want to share with you this, that the same God who made this promise to the Israelites is the same God that made the promises to us that we find in the New Testament. And while we don't have to obey God to get these benefits... We should obey God because of what he has done for us. Paul and James both make this argument in Romans and James that as a result of what Jesus has done for us, we ought to obey him and follow his commands. And I still believe that God desires to give us good things, to give us blessings in the same way that he desired to bless and give good things to the Israelites. And so while, yes, sometimes God destroys his enemies, let us rejoice that because of Jesus Christ, we are not his enemies. We, too, have been taken in by God as part of his covenant relationship, even though it's a different covenant than the one he signed with Israel. We, too, are in God's people, and he loves us, and he cares for us. I think that is a note of encouragement we can all take tonight. And I want you to share that with people around you, because through Jesus Christ, everyone can be part of God's family, can enjoy God's blessing. So let's share the gospel with the people that we meet this week. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for an opportunity to consider Deuteronomy chapter 7, the truths that you have for us through your word from this passage. Help us to share the message of Jesus, the message that you, God, desire a relationship with us. Lord, we struggle to understand that, why you would want a relationship with us, but you do. And we thank you for it. We thank you for showing your love towards us. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for watching this video of one of our recent services. It's a pleasure for us to have you join us from a distance and join our church in a time of worship around the Word of God. The most important message that we can tell you is that God loves you. And he loves you so much that He gave Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. And the Bible says that all that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. We want you to know that message that true life is found in Jesus Christ an eternal life, the opportunity to live with God forever in heaven in spite of our sinfulness. True life is only found in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Would you be willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to pray something like this? Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know there's nothing I can do about my sinfulness. I don't want to pay for my own sin and I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want his death on the cross to pay for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my own way and make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be willing to pray something like that and put your faith in Jesus Christ? If so, we want to help you as you start your spiritual journey with Jesus Christ. God loves you. Our church loves you. We're glad that you could watch this message today. God bless.